Lamentations chapter 3 is our text for tonight. A sequence of the most wonderful and powerful verses in all of God's Word are here in this third chapter. When you're being buffeted, when you're going through incredible suffering, it is nothing short of transforming to read. Get down to verse 22 for a minute. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Underline them, memorize them, and then live them out. There are 61 other verses in this chapter, and among them are some of the most disturbing words in all the Bible. Some of what we will read has been said to border on blasphemy. The same author who uttered verses 22 through 26 says about God, for example, this is from verses 12 and 13, he has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the sorrows uh, or the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. Theologians and philosophers struggle to reconcile these seemingly two contrary pictures of God. I'm going to maintain they don't need to be reconciled if we simply remember the context of our story. The lamenter was lamenting God's dealings with his covenant nation of Judah. In the 6th century, they were mostly non-believers involved in gross and immoral idolatry. We tend to think of the uh, children of Israel the way we think of the church and God's dealings with them the way we think of his dealings with a church like Calvary Chapel. But you have to understand that the nation of Israel was comprised of mostly non-believers at this time. They were God's elect, God's covenant people, God's chosen nation, but that didn't translate into salvation for them. What's more, God had been reaching out to these Jews for almost 500 years to repent of their sins or they would face the judgments that were part of the law of Moses that was their agreement with God. There were blessings for obedience. There were cursings and judgments for disobedience. A key verse in this chapter is going to be chapter, or excuse me, verse 39. Why should a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? What happened to Judah and Jerusalem in the 6th century was the direct result of their sin and their refusal to repent of sin. Their choices left God no choice but to judge and to punish. But in his wrath, we'll see against sin, he remembered his mercy. A remnant was spared and Israel as a nation exists up to this present day. This long chapter will not be without application for us as Christians in the dispensation of grace. We can definitely claim the verses about God's mercy in our times of incredible suffering, not just because we want to, but because they reveal the essential nature and character of our gracious God. Sometimes people ask me, well, how do I know when verses are about us and when they're about the nation of Israel? Uh, context, of course, like we're seeing tonight, but if something is telling you about the essential nature and character of God, then it's for all time. God is unchangeable in that respect. If the, you know, he's, he's merciful from start to finish. And so when you read verses that just talk about God being faithful and God being merciful and God being compassionate, then anyone can claim those. On the other hand, even though we suffer and can suffer severely, it's wrong to think of our afflictions as the judgment of God upon us because our sins have already been judged on the cross 
where Jesus took our place. I am not the target of God's arrows. I am the target of the fiery darts of Satan. And while some may think it amounts to the same thing, since the devil can only do what God permits, it's not the same, not by a long shot, to say that God is shooting his arrows at me versus the devil is after me. Now, the first 20 or so verses are complaints to God about his direct role in the fall of the city and the suffering of its citizens. They present a series of disturbing illustrations, to say the least. So let's read them. Beginning in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin, a broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul from uh, far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction in roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Now, God is represented as a punisher wielding the rod of discipline, as a guide who led him into darkness, as the besieger of cities, as a bear or a lion that tears to pieces its prey. The writer represents himself as if he were thrown by God into a dungeon that was worse than Hades itself. He appears as a traveler whose way is blocked, not by some accidental fall of rock, but by a set purpose, for he finds the obstruction to be of carefully prepared masonry, hewn stones. Therefore, he has to turn aside so that his paths become crooked. It's dishonest for us to try and argue that Jeremiah was simply angry and therefore being inaccurate in his representations of God. He was actually spot on. God was this way toward the Jews. He did these things to them. He says so. And we have to face that. Now, I'm not saying we should applaud it, but when we read about God doing things like this to, say, Sodom and Gomorrah, we understand it was deserved. It doesn't make it any easier to swallow, but at least we see it as the punishment of sin. So if, if we're reading Genesis and we're in the section where Abraham is pleading for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we're excited that Lot and his family could have been spared and at least Lot and his daughters were taken out before judgment fell. If we have any compassion at all, we care about the citizens of that city or certainly the innocents of that city. Remember when God was reproving Jonah because he didn't want the Ninevites to get saved, he, he, he mentioned that there were children in that city and shouldn't we care about them if judgment is going to fall? And, so, and yet, there's part of us that thinks in the end those cities deserve the judgment they got. 
They, they were wicked and the people were wicked and they brought that upon themselves and it was, it was fair and deserving. When we get to Israel, we think, oh, we're appalled. How could God do that to his own people? And you have to remember that they were his people, his chosen nation, but they were not saved. Individual Jews were saved like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and many others, but for the most part, they were non-believers who were thumbing their nose at God and refusing to repent, and God had warned them and warned them and warned them, and then he finally brought judgment. Uh, the few like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah were caught up in it, but their lives were saved as God's treasure. And you read these amazing accounts of Jeremiah or of Daniel especially uh, and his three friends and others like them. Now, the next sequence of verses shines against this pitch black background. In his wrath against sin, God remembered his mercy and his unconditional promise that he'd made to Abraham's descendants. In verse 20, we read, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. The opening verses then were Jeremiah's remembrance. Even in light of what he was about to say, his soul would always sink within him for the destruction of Jerusalem. He took no pleasure in the death of the wicked or in the death of innocent children who were caught in the fires as that city burned. Would to God the Jews would have simply repented. Do any of us have any doubt that even at the very last, if there had been genuine repentance, that God would have turned uh, towards them with compassion and mercy? Uh, of course he would have. And so, verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, I don't want to rob us of the comfort of these precious verses, but in their original context, as we're reading them tonight, they mean that God would not, he could not consume Israel because of his faithfulness. If you were a Jew living in Jerusalem at the time of that siege when the Babylonian armies, the Chaldeans came through the walls and over the walls and were burning and pillaging, you had a pretty good idea that Israel was going to be wiped off the face of the earth. But God is saying, I can't consume Israel because I am faithful to my promises. He had compassion upon them and showed mercy at least to a remnant. Every morning after that, Jews could be assured that these things are true. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now regardless the absolute horror of what happened in Jerusalem, a surviving Jew could encourage his or her heart that God was their portion and that they ought to wait and seek and hope and go on waiting to see what is here called the salvation of the Lord, which in their case meant the ultimate final fulfillment of his plan to establish them as his capital nation on the millennial earth. That's the fullness of the salvation of Israel meant that God would fulfill and complete his promises to them as a nation and that looks beyond our own day and time to the time we often talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And, and so Jeremiah, he sees what God had to do to Jerusalem and he is still intrigued by God's faithfulness 
to his promises, what he's going to do through history with them. Now we're going to move rapidly through the rest of the chapter. Verses 27 through 39 establish that God is, in fact, long-suffering with mankind in general in their sin. He works to bring you to salvation from your youth. Verse 27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. In other words, the Lord is working to humble individuals in various ways through suffering, through affliction, through persecution in order for them to cry out to him. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he shows compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause, the Lord does not approve. And so here we see that God does not afflict willingly. He doesn't want to grieve the children of men, but he must do something to correct sin on the earth. God, in his holiness and because of his love and compassion, he acts in history and in the lives of individuals to draw them away from sin and towards his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 37, who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? This tells us that woe must sometimes proceed from the Lord in order for him to correct sin. The children of Israel, great example of this in a sad way, as I've said many times now, uh, 500 years, not the same people, obviously, but with the nation as a whole, God had been uh, sending them famine. He had been sending them pestilence. He had been sending them disease. Uh, he had been sending them drought. All of those were signs and signals that he said would happen for their disobedience. He had been sending them prophet after prophet after prophet with a direct word to them with the signs and the symbols of, of their uh, veracity calling them to repentance. And in the end, we saw in our studies in Jeremiah, they were still saying things like, well, we trust the queen of heaven. When it, we're going to continue to give offerings to the queen of heaven. That's where our true prosperity comes from. We're going to sacrifice our children to the idols. We refuse to follow God. What do you do with people like that? They're incorrigible. And so God, I guess if you're incorrigible, you must be able to be couraged, right? And so God courages them. He says, I don't want to afflict. I don't want to grieve. I, but I will bring woe if necessary. If that's the only way. Verse 39. Why should a living man complain a man for the punishment of his sins? God must act when sin goes unconfessed and there is a refusal to repent. Now, we can all relate to being parents. Whether you're a parent currently or, uh, or not, you've had parents or you are parents or you've been parents. Um, if you're a parent, do you look forward to spanking your child? I mean, do you get up in the morning and think, I can't wait to spank my children today? If you, there's something wrong with you if, if you feel that way. 
I know we joke about spankings, but uh, it, it's, it's almost like a gallows humor. No, no parent wakes up and thinks, I can't wait to get at it today. I'm going to do some wrist exercises. I'm going to get my elbow ready, shine up the paddle because I just, discipline is where it's at. Of course you don't look forward to spanking your child, but you do it. You must if you love them. Maybe you don't believe in spanking. Hopefully you're disciplining your children in some fashion because you discipline those that you love. Discipline is something you must do. You don't want to do it. You know, when you're getting ready to go and, and get that ice cream that you've been looking forward to and you've been looking forward to it more than your children because it's it, it just, you know, it's a rocky road or your favorite or whatever it is and then they just throw down right in front of you and they just challenge you, you know, they just absolutely do the thing you told them not to do or they don't do the thing you told them to do and you, you give them, you count to 10 or 20 or 100 or whatever and stuff but at some point, you have to discipline them. And this is the picture that we have here. God says, that this is that point, guys. It's, we're 500 years into my asking you to repent and your refusal and your continuing in sin and pretty gross sin, pretty gross sin and pretty costly sin in terms of child sacrifice and all. And... Um, God says, I, this is it. This is the discipline that I promised you when we made our covenant at Mount Sinai. When you said you would take this on, that I would bless you for obedience, but I'd have to curse you for disobedience. Now I'm going to implement that discipline. And when your children complain and you discipline them anyway, don't you tell them to choose obedience next time? Just choose to obey next time. Don't throw that tantrum on the way out. Uh, don't kick the dog. Don't spill that right in front of me on purpose. Whatever it is, just choose to obey next time and everything will be fine. That's all God is doing here. Now, verses 40 through 47 show that the Jews refused to repent. Uh, Firstly, he says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven because we have transgressed and rebelled, you have not pardoned. Now, verse 40 and 41 really are what they should have done, what Jeremiah had been encouraging them to do. Uh, God didn't pardon them because they hadn't repented, because it says in verse 43, you've covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You've made us an offscouring refuse and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us, desolation and destruction. They refuse to repent. And you're saying, well, where does it actually say that in here? Well, this is the companion to the book of Jeremiah. You understand that. And, and that's where we came to in our studies in Jeremiah where the people just said, forget you, God. We don't believe you're going to do this because we have the temple we have your temple. Your presence dwells among us. You're stuck with us. We do whatever we want. We'll set up idols right in the temple. Watch me sacrifice my children to the gods. You can't do anything about it. People are worshiping idols and no one's doing a thing about it. And God says, yes, yes, I am. Here's what I'm going to do and it's going to be pretty severe. 
Verse 48, my eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit and threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. This reads like a summary of Jeremiah's experience for 40 years serving God, trying to reach these people. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. Lord, you have seen how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. This is Jeremiah agreeing that God was righteous in what he was doing to these unrepentant people. And yet at the same time, weeping rivers of tears for them because of uh, his compassion and because he understood the Lord's compassion. Jeremiah suffered both more and less than the Jews whose city and temple were destroyed. He suffered more because in addition to having to endure the siege, the destruction, and captivity, he was hated and persecuted by the very people he was trying to save. And the destruction of the city and the temple would be felt much stronger by him as a believer than by them. I mean, they had abandoned God. They didn't really believe in God. What did they care about the temple except that it represented safety to them? To Jeremiah, he understood that it represented the very presence of God in the midst of his people, and it would, it would grieve him as it does or it did Ezekiel when he spoke of the leaving of that presence. He also suffered less in the sense that God was his portion. He heard God say, do not fear. God redeemed his life, considered it a treasure, a spoil of the war. Jeremiah had a sense that God would vindicate him ultimately and totally. When that army came through and when that destruction was taking place, Jeremiah was among the few whose heart said to him, do not fear. Do not fear. He was one of the few who could claim God as his portion and knew that it wasn't the fact that there was a temple in Jerusalem that would protect them, but that he himself was God's temple, that he was God's treasure. It was worth a great deal spiritually to have that experience. Now, if you're a believer, you can relate to Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel because you suffer both more and less than non-believers as you seek to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while verses 21 through 26 were written to the Jews, they revealed the heart of God to anyone and to everyone. Along those lines, let me suggest something. In verse 22, we read, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. <clears throat> There's a better even preferable translation. The ESV says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. That'd make a great song. 
It's not that God has to endure us because he happens to be merciful as if he'd rather just blot us out. That's, that's one way of looking at people say, well, it's, it's by the Lord's mercies we're not consumed. It's a good thing that the Lord is merciful because he just wants to consume us. He looks down and he sees the sinfulness of man. He says, How, what can I do to squash Gene Pensiero today? Oh, wait a minute. I'm merciful. I guess I'll have to. Okay, son. You know, and there's this idea that Jesus comes along and says, Dad, don't hurt Gene. He's a friend of mine. I died for him. I want to gut Gene. Look what he's doing now. And there's this idea, and even Christian, you know, in the church we have this idea. There's whole theologies built around this idea that, that for God to save anyone is, is you know, amazing because we all deserve to just be wiped out and God is the, just the God to do it. Thunderbolts, whatever it is, you know, he's ready to consume us. His mercy has never come to an end. I like that better. God's not about the business of blotting us out. All you have to do is read the account in the book of Genesis to find out what God is like. He says, hey, just one, one tiny rule. You broke that rule? Who told you to do that? That was stupid. But here's what I'm going to do. You can't save yourself, but I'm going to save you. I'll come. I'll die in your place. I'll rise from the dead. Everything will be like it was before one day. It's going to take some time now. It's going to take, you know, from... God's perspective, a thousand years is as one day and one day is as a thousand years. So, you know, from that perspective, it's moving pretty rapidly. From our perspective, it's been, you know, uh, seven, eight thousand years and, and um, it, you know, from the time of the Garden of Eden and it's, um, it seems to be taking a long time with a lot of suffering, but uh, that's because God is dealing with hearts that are just incredibly hard and difficult to deal with. God loves us so much that new mercies are always available by which we are maintained or restored to his grace. And so God, maybe you're running from God tonight. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're in sin. You're harboring some sin, some known sin, living in habitual sin, um, thinking that you're hiding behind Jesus, you know, because God is trying to blot you out. He's here with mercy. He's offering you mercy to get you out of that slavery and back into a walk with him. He doesn't, he has nothing but best intentions for you. Now, we've not answered all the questions that can be asked about our suffering on the earth as we journey homeward to heaven. The problem of pain will remain something of a mystery unrevealed. My approach, as I've said to these verses, is to see the truth of what Israel was at the time. They were a a sinful, unrepentant, non-believing nation. Even today, when you look at the nation of Israel in the Holy Land, God has restored them and regathered them to their land, but they are mostly non-believers, aren't they? Israel is not a Christian nation. Does it sound funny to say that? that Israel would be a Christian nation because we have this idea of Jews versus Christians and all that. You know, Jesus was a Jew. Do you realize that, right? And one day, Israel is going to be a Christian nation. That day, but you know what it's gonna take? It's gonna take the great tribulation because Israel is just as stubborn today in one sense as they were 2,000 years ago. 
They're not as sinful as these people in terms of what they're doing to God, but it's going to take the time of Jacob's trouble to turn their hearts back to the Lord so that they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And who's doing that? God is doing that. It, it, if you read the book of Revelation and think, man, these incredible judgments, how can, a, how can God do this? The answer, the real perspective is this is what God has to do because people are so wicked, because their hearts are so hard, nothing short of the judgments of the book of Revelation will turn men's hearts, some men's hearts at least, to the Lord. Moses and Elijah, we believe, are the two witnesses that are going to be alive on the earth sharing the gospel. Nobody can kill them. They're going to be supernatural guys going around sharing, calling down fire from heaven and doing miracles. There'll be 144,000 super protected Jewish evangelists. Angels are going to be visible preaching the gospel from heaven. And people will still refuse Jesus Christ as their Savior and follow the Antichrist. Nothing short of the judgments of the book of Revelation will turn hearts back to God. And so whenever I think of, whenever people say, oh, look at what God is doing, no, look at what it takes for God to get our attention is really what's happening. Because you know what? If God were to withdraw his compassion and mercy even for the slightest part of a millisecond, then we would be consumed. We would consume ourselves in wickedness and, and sin. If we as children of God in this dispensation of grace sometimes feel as though he is against us, maybe we, I, I, some of us, I know I can, you can relate to those, open 20 ver, 20, 20 verses, those opening 20 verses. You think, yeah, I felt that way about God before. Maybe I'm embarrassed to admit it in public or to anybody that I know, but I've, I felt like I, was, I had a target on my back that God had put there because, you know, if he's allowing it, he might as well be doing it. And we struggle with issues like that. But simultaneously, do we not know by the indwelling Holy Spirit that God is for us and that in his faithfulness, his mercies are new every morning? It's kind of weird being a Christian, is it not? I mean, when we're honest about it, because we can feel just like that, and yet we know in our hearts that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And we can, like Paul in, in the book of Romans there at the end of chapter eight, he says, hey, all this stuff can come against us persecution and trouble and spiritual things and worldly things, but nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I don't know why, but at times all I can do is stand and wait to see the salvation of the Lord as life unfolds, knowing that he's faithful and that if I have to do it again tomorrow, his mercies will never fail me. Amen?